witch in the wardrobe, Father Christmas coming up was good news to everyone except for the white witch and her army. In the same way, Christmas in our world is not good news to everyone. Specifically, the message that a king has come is terrifying to some. It's earth-shattering to some. It's, it's heart-shaking to some. While it means good news to us who believe in Jesus, while it means that God's kingdom has dawned at the birth of Christ, at the coming of the Messiah in flesh, it means the death of other people's kingdoms. To others, it means the end of their reign, the end of their own sovereign kingship, because the real king, the true king, has come. Now, as I think we'll see in Matthew 2, it's important to pay attention to the comparison of these two types of people. The magi, who are humble, and who lay down their royal gifts before the king, who set down symbolically their kingdoms, and the megalomaniac, King Herod, who tries to hold on to his kingdom. Even from birth, Jesus shows that his coming into the world of men brings a division. People are divided into two categories, those who worship the king and those who reject him and try to set up their own kingdom. Now, before diving straight into Matthew's scripture, I think it's important to remember that Matthew is one book. So Matthew 2 is one chapter in a book, Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is one gospel in the whole Bible, so it belongs into the whole story of God's redemption. And so just zooming out just a little bit, what does the birth of the Messiah in Matthew 2 and the worship of these magis have to do with the big picture of the Bible? And I think if you zoom out all the way to Psalm chapter 2, you find where God speaks of his anointed one, the Messiah, who is enthroned by God himself on Zion. Now, where this picks up in Matthew 2 is there's two kings spoken of in Psalm 2. There are some kings, the kings of the earth, who respond by setting themselves against the anointed one, by taking counsel to see how they can throw off his bonds, to throw off his chains, literally to usurp God and his anointed king. On the other hand, there are kings who are exhorted to be wise, who will be told to kiss the sun lest you be angry, to serve him with fear and to rejoice in trembling. And so Psalm 2 gives us this picture. Kings can go one of two ways. Either they will kiss the son and take refuge in him and serve him and find him to be their savior, or they'll set themselves against him and shatter against his judgment and justice when his reign is established. Now, I think the first type of kings, the, the, the rebels, the ones that are setting themselves up against the Messiah, we see in Matthew 2 in Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the epitome of the king's who set themselves against the Lord's Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, if you don't know much about Herod, this is if you like history, you'll like this portion of it, because Herod was an Edomite whose only claim to the throne of Judah was the influential politician, his friend, Mark Antony. Um, And and Mark Antony said that he could have the throne, and so Herod said, great, I'll take it, Uh, and he took it. He, He had no right to it. He wasn't the Davidic offspring. He wasn't uh, someone who deserved to get it. Uh, He had no uh, uh, biological uh, right to the throne. He was an architectural genius, as I, I think some of these pictures that I have up here will show. Last time I used this thing, I couldn't get it to work. There we go. This is Herod's palace, as you'll see in some of uh, these pictures. It's beautiful architecture. This is a king who knew how to shape and form and how to take over the kingdom, take over nature to build his kingdom. That is his personal pull. 
He sectioned off a section of the Mediterranean to be his personal swimming pool and bath. This is telling you a little bit of what this king is like. Can you imagine a guy who sees himself as so powerful, so glorious, that he's going to concrete off a section of the sea for his own personal swimming pool? Well, that's him. He didn't like the water in Caesarea, so he decided to build an aqueduct as we get there that took the water from the mountains and it was like ice cold water into his own personal cup. He built great, amazing things. He even built the second temple. This was a king that we all would expect to be king. He was glorious, powerful, mighty. He did whatever he wanted to do. And yet, as we will see, King Herod's palaces, his temples, his aqueducts, his fortresses like the one at Masada, they're all left in ruins. His glory faded. He held on to his kingship. He set himself up against the Messiah, and he shattered against the rock of Christ the King. The second type of king I think we'll see in the Magi. The word Magi mean wise men, basically. Uh, and they were dignitaries and officials in Persia. They were given royal status. They, if you read Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4, you see these wise men who kind of have authority like a king, who are advisors to the king, councilmen to the king. Their word is effective and powerful. So these are royal type figures. Even if they're not true kings in and of themselves, they stand like kings and they are the kings who are wise who kiss the Son, who serve Him in fear and trembling. These are the kings who bow down themselves, who lay down their kingdoms for the sake of Christ, the true King. So I think before we ever read Matthew 2, listening to, the Psalm, to Psalm 2 and how these two kings respond in one of two ways. And immediately we're forced to see that there are two reactions to the King who comes. Those who fear him and serve him and love him and rejoice, who take refuge in him. And then there are those who preserve their own kingdoms, fight for their own kingship, and rebel against him. Now let's get into Matthew 2. Matthew 2 begins by saying this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now here's an interesting thought, just a question. How did these pagan Gentile magi, they're non-Jewish people who don't have immediate access to everything that the Jews have, pointing them to the Messiah, how did they understand that a star rising up over Judah meant the birth of a king, and not just any king, but a king worthy of worship? How did they piece that together? Where are they seeing that from? Well, if these magi truly are magi from the east, being from Persia, where the Jewish people spent time in exile, then they had access to the Hebrew scriptures, which means they had access to numbers. And if you don't like the book of Numbers, you've missed one of the greatest promises that the Old Testament has. We just talked about that this morning in our Sunday school class. Numbers gives us one of the best promises of what Christ would be. And it comes through another unexpected prophet, Balaam, a pagan idol-worshiping diviner. And here's what it says in Numbers 24. Listen carefully. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. 
So literally, you see this picture of a star rising up out of Judah. And with the star, there's a scepter. There's a king. And this king is going to be a head-crushing king, which sounds like what? Sounds like Genesis 3.15, where God promised that an offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so you have a head-crushing offspring whose birth and coming is announced by the rising of a star, and to him belongs the scepter. Now, if they're reading Numbers chapter 24... And if they're seeing this, which wise men did that all the time in those days, Magi would constantly go to other scripture, other people's scriptures and read and read the stars and try to divine the truth. And yet they happen to stumble across this biblical messianic prophecy. They see the star and they're immediately drawn to the king of Israel. They come and the, their very first words on the scene is, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? They see biblical prophecy. They see the biblical truth of the coming of the king better than most of God's biological people. They come and they want to worship. Now Herod's response directly contrasts theirs. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now the word for trouble doesn't just mean that they were stressed, that they were taken back or surprised. It actually means distressed. They were in turmoil. They were broken by. They were disturbed by the news that this king had come. These are the people who had daily access to the promises of God. If anyone should have been watching for him, looking for him, waiting for his arrival, it's these people. And yet when they hear that he has come, they respond in trembling and they are disturbed in turmoil. They are broken by this. So we see that the truth of John 1, 11 is true. He came to his own, and his own did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So rather than being ready for the long-awaited king, they were shaken by it. Herod, being greatly disturbed, went then to his uh, throne, to, went, went to uh, the great high priest, and went to the scribes, and began to ask them, where is the Christ to be born? Now, I think it's important to see that Herod understood right, right away who this king was. The Magi were looking for the king who was born to be king of the Jews. He immediately pieces it together. It's the Christ. He wants to know where this Christ is to be born. He understands that he's setting himself up. Not against just another pretender to the throne. Not just against an, another usurper son. Not against uh, one of his wives that he had to execute because he thought that she was uh, plotting against him. He's setting himself up against the Christ. The Lord's anointed one. The one enthroned on Zion. The one who would have worldwide reign. He wants to know where he's born. And I think as we have all read ahead, we know why he wants to know where he's born. The priests and scribes search and they find Micah 5, another amazing promise of what this Messiah would be. It says this, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, they're given another chance to respond to this king who has come. They're given another chance to go and find him and worship him and, and praise him and, ex, and, and welcome him into Jerusalem as the true king. 
They hear it. They hear the promise that the ruler's going to come. Restoration's going to come according to Micah 5 by, by his reign. He's going to be the shepherd who leads them into still waters and green pastures, the one who leads them back to their God. The chief priests at best were ambivalent about it. They read this knowing that they're searching for the Christ and where he's going to be born, but they do nothing about it. Herod reads it and he goes back and he immediately begins to plot. He comes up with a deceitful scheme. He goes to the wise men and secretly asks them to go and search for the star, search for the child, and when you have found him, come back and report to me so that I too may worship him. In the next section, we find out that Herod has no intentions to worship. He has intentions to kill, to murder. The plotting king who plots against the Lord and is anointed. The king who wants to see the Christ come down. The king who wants to see the Christ dead. The, the king who wants to throw off the chains and shackles of Yahweh and his anointed one. The king who wants nothing to do with a God who reigns over all, but a king who wants to set up his own sovereign reign. And then you get to verses 9 and 10. It says this. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now again, you're, you're left with this comparison. How did the people of Israel respond when they heard that the Christ had been born, that the king had come? They responded in great disturbance, in great distress. They were greatly troubled and trembled. But how did these magi respond? They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Completely unaware of, of, of this happening. With us reading this, if we were to be good Jews, we'd just be, stepped, be, be awestruck by this. That the king's own people don't recognize him. That God's own people don't see him. That God's own people don't worship him and welcome him in. But these magi welcome him with joy. And not just any joy, great and abundant and overflowing joy. They open up to him gifts. They fall down in worship. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh most likely pointing forward to his death on the cross. Because myrrh is used in burial anointments. It's almost as if they see better than God's own people in Israel did. Now, what's the point of all this? Putting it into the big plan. When we read this, we wouldn't expect pagan, idol-worshipping, Persian dignitaries to be bowing before the manger of Christ. Well, not the manger, but in the house of Christ. That's one thing. Be sure and separate your three kings out a ways, okay? Because they're not at the manger. They come to the house. But the fact of the matter is that we wouldn't find these pagan magi, sinners and idolaters, unclean Gentiles, bowing down before him. And yet, as surprising as it is, it fits perfectly into the plan of God. God has constantly been beating this drum that he is out for the salvation of the nations. You see it in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, where he says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, that's Jesus, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It says it again in Isaiah 49, 7, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves before the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And then later in Psalm 72, verse 11, it says this, May kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. 
The biblical vision of Christ's kingship has forever been that all nations, all people would bow before him, recognize him as king. That the unexpected sinners, the unclean people would come and find him to be their king, to be their Messiah. The story of the Magi, one of the most famous stories that we have in all of our Christmas tradition, serves as a reminder that Satan, our version of the White Witch, his reign is coming to, the, to an end. That his power is waning. That his, that his dominion is, is growing weaker. And that Christ is powerfully expanding his dominion in all the earth. That his kingdom is spreading and that God's glory will spread and cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. His birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection show us that it's not about ethnicity. It's not about socioeconomic politics. It's not about your background. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is because he has come to save every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's one of the beautiful things about the gospel. It's beautiful things about gathering in a church. We see Mexicans. We see Venezuelans. We see Argentinians. We see white people. I get to occasionally hear my brothers worshiping in China over the phone and listening to them say, woman, the Jew sure way thy. It's just amazing to hear because that's the foretaste of what we're going to get around the kingdom. That all peoples will be gathered around the throne of Christ. That's what this prefigures, is these magi come, Persians of all people, magic folk. That's that's what the word magi means, that they they kind of practice witchcraft. People who stare at the stars. These these are astrologers and idol worshipers. And and of all people, who do we find worshiping Jesus at his birth? It's them, not the chief priests, not the scribes. God's kingdom is filled with ragamuffins that we would not expect to be there. God's kingdom is filled with people who we would not in this lifetime ever think we would see there. It's filled with Ruths and Rahabs, with Bathshebas, and with these magi reminding us that God is the God of the world. That he's not just God of a certain select group of people. And that he is out to bring people of all nations to his son. What then? Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. As mentioned earlier, Jesus' coming is good news to some and bad news to others. Scripture is abundant with this message. What we see illustrated in Matthew 2, it's a relatively quick story, very simple. Magi come, they want to know, know where Christ is, they want to go worship him. They find out, they go and worship him while Herod tries to kill him. Very simple, can summarize it in five minutes. And yet, it's an illustration that has profound impact on our daily lives. What we see played out in Matthew 2, we, say, we see played out every single day. Scripture's replete and abundant with these images of Christ being a stone to some, a cornerstone on which they can build their life and find rest, and yet he is a stumbling block to others. The same Savior can be salvation to some and judgment to others. He can bring rest and restoration, he can build you up, or he can tear you down and leave you broken against him. We also see it in the image of light. He's a bright light to some 
Isaiah talks about the, the light that has dawned in the darkness in Isaiah 9-2. It has brought good news and the joy of the message of restoration. And those who have dwelt in darkness, they now have a great light. And you see this image of people welcoming great light after being in darkness for so long. And yet, you also see in John 3 that people reject Jesus. Why? Because people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So to some... Literally, we have this image. They wake up, they see the morning, and they're like, ah, oh, it's morning. And to others, they wake up and they shield their eyes. It's morning. And they try to hide their face. That's how people respond to Jesus. He's either their stone, their stumbling block, their bright light, or their blinding light. And it's always true for all people. He's one of those two things. There's no middle ground here. You either accept Jesus as king or he's a threat to your kingdom. The passage leads us to personal application. We have to ask this of ourselves. Is Jesus my cornerstone? Is Jesus my cornerstone or my stumbling block? Is Jesus the sweet light that I welcome in the darkness? Or is he the blinding light that I shield my eyes from? Am I with the magi here marching to Jesus? To worship him, to love him? To give him gifts? Or am I Herod protecting my own throne in terror and in turmoil and distress of what he might bring? Do you view Jesus in, in, in the way that we would hope that the gospel would bring us to see him as, as king? Or are we like Herod busy building our palaces, our personal pools, our vomitoriums where we can eat and indulge, go vomit and eat and indulge some more. That's, he literally had a place like that. Do we have, do we have uh, our own hippodromes where we can go and entertain ourselves, our own pleasure houses? Are we busy building up our own kingdom every little bit to mirror our own personal satisfaction and gratification and pleasure? Or are we about the kingdom of God being built? It's tragically easy for us to build Herod-like kingdoms for ourselves. We, we slip into it just like that. We become Herods in just a few moments. And, and, and just a, we wake up, we're ready to live the day, and yet, within just a few moments of the day, we're already struggling to be Herod again. Sinful humans, including Christians throughout all history, have sought to build names for themselves. We have our personality cults, our fan bases, our American idols. We have modern-day babbles that are opposed to God's reign and rule. We see in Matthew 2 that Herod was evil. His heart was wicked, but the desires of his heart were not novel. I, as a sinner, have the heart of Herod. Every single person who has ever rebelled against God, every single person who has been born since the fall, has had a heart like Herod's, separated from God, filled with sin, filled with rebellion, ready and willing to build our own kingdoms in opposition to the kingdoms of God. If you want to know where we fit in the story, we fit more with Herod than we fit with the Magi. The Magi are an offshoot by the grace of God, rescued despite their own sinful selves, and yet we tend to be Herod. And yet it will only be the grace of God that brings us out of that. It's only the grace of God that causes us to put down our Herod-like kingdoms and to instead come to Jesus like a magi, ready to lay down all symbols of kingship, 
ready to bow down before Him who deserves the power and the majesty, the glory and the praise for eternity and eternity. Herod built himself up to be an eternal fixture in Israel. And you go down there now and you see nothing but piles of stone. Jesus came, was born in a manger, moved to a house in Bethlehem where these magi then worshipped him. And his kingdom's still growing. His kingdom will never be in ruin. My friends, that message should breathe life into us daily. Herod-like kingdoms pop up in our daily life again and again and again. Sometimes we obsess about what someone might think about us. We want to build that great name for ourselves. Sometimes we are more committed to find self-worth than we are committed to the gospel. We search for something tangible that, to show that we are valuable and that we are worthy and, and that we are to be loved by all people. So we, we, we fight for that self-worth, self-worth. We daydream about exaltation and fame. When I was in high school, I constantly thought about scoring the touchdown and what it would be like to have all the crowds around me cheering my name. Those daydreams still happen for us, even in our adulthood. We daydream about our own self-exaltation. Building a Herod-like kingdom can happen in our fatherhood as we ignore what God might want for our children and instead press them into something that will fulfill our vicarious dream. It happens in our motherhood. When, our little, when the little subjects of our kingdom just don't do what we want them to do, right? My wife is finding that out powerfully right now where Titus, uh, he, he talks about, he, he shows his individuality in his own sovereign kingdom by peeing all over the place. <laughs> Claims it as his. Sovereign mama doesn't get happy about that. Neither does sovereign daddy, especially when his books are right there beside this puddle. Sometimes it happens in our motherhood. Sometimes it happens in our workplaces as we work hard so that those around us will acknowledge our supreme skill and worth, hoping just maybe that they'll give us a little more gold if they realize it. It happens in our houses. We dream of the most comfortable places. We have hippodromes in our own living room where we can watch the races and we can entertain ourselves. We have pleasure palaces and we get obsessed. It's not so bad that we have a house. It's the fact that we're obsessed about building this kingdom around us. It can happen in our friendships as we begin to use our friends to get to things we want. Things like affirmation. Things like being needed. Things like being wanted. It can even happen in churches. As we perform a daily, weekly census of how many by how many people our kingdom has grown or shrunk. Herod-like kingdoms pop up all the time in our lives. The quicker we see that, the quicker we'll be ready to repent of that. The only remedy to fight against these Herod-like kingdoms is this insistence that I be king and that I be remembered and that my name be remembered above all else and that I be set up as an eternal fixture in the lives of others. The only way to fight against that is to come to Christ daily like a magi in that posture. Bowing. Bowing. People who know that they're not the true king bow. People who know that they're not the sovereign Lord of all bow. So we come daily to Christ like a magi. And in in this, we acknowledge his right to reign in our life. We acknowledge our inability to rule ourselves righteously. And we hand him over our most precious gifts, the gold of our children. 
We hand over our, our time, our name, our fame, our wealth, our relationships, our home, even our dreams to this king, acknowledging him as king, acknowledging his right to rule over these things that we now lay before him to use in his own pleasure. When we do this, we also subtly recognize him as our refuge. We are the, as we come daily to Christ like the Magi, laying down our gifts, laying down the most precious things in our life, we come to him recognizing the fact that this is the son that Psalm 2 talks about. Kiss the son. Serve him with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. We come to him approaching him as the mighty, majestic, amazing, dignitary, the king of all the universe that all history has waited for. You might say, okay, you know, I, I hear what you're saying and thumbs up on it, but why shouldn't I build my own kingdom? I mean, Jesus isn't here. I don't see him, right? So why not build up my own pleasure palaces and why not work for my own name? Why not accumulate gold? Why do I have to build somebody else's kingdom? Why should I give my life and my treasures and my possessions and my gifts and my skills? Why should I give that for somebody else's kingdom rather than mine? Here's why. Because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. What king has ever stepped down from his throne and dressed himself like a slave to die a slave's death? What king has willingly allowed himself to be conquered and executed by his enemies? What king would remain silent as his rebellious subjects hit him, spit at him, pulled out his beard, mocked him, put a a sign, king of the Jews, over his head just out of making fun? What king would forgive insurrectionists as they nailed him to the instrument of torture? What king would look on his executioners in love and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What king would die humbly and be buried in disgrace and stay there for three days, allowing his enemies to think that they had won? Now, what other king also burst the bonds of death, folded his own grave clothes, and walked out of his own tomb in glory and power? What other king ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, still bears the mark of a sacrificial lamb, and yet holds the power of the Lion of Judah? What other king has promised to be with you at every turn and every moment, who says things like, I will never leave you till the end of the age? What other king can even turn our sorrows and sufferings into moments of amazing redemption? He can take our bitterness and doesn't just just use our bitterness, but empathizes with them, sympathizes with them, knowing that we are weak people ourselves. What other king has tasted the bitter cup of suffering? Experiencing suffering in such a way none of us could ever imagine. What other king took our separation from God for us? And now has reserved a place in heaven right now that's ours because of his sacrifice. There is no other king like that. None but Jesus. None but Jesus. We worship him as king because he has shown himself to be king indeed. Now it's unclear whether the Magi actually understood how appropriate their worship was. 
if you uh, watch the old, uh, what's the what's the movie, The Robe or whatever? Um, uh, oh no, no, it's uh, Ben Hur. If you watch the old Ben Hur, then the Magi show up again. We don't know. We don't know what happened to them. We don't know if they show back up. If they knew what Jesus did, would you do at the cross? We don't know. If they actually became Christians, as some uh, points in history tell us, we don't know any of that. But one thing we do know, we know how appropriate their actions were. We know how appropriate their worship was. We know how appropriate it is that they would bow down to this king who would build his kingdom through death, burial, and resurrection. Herod, on the other hand, is just a name carved on a stone. That stone is crumbled and broken and left in piles and rubble. My friend, if we build our own kingdoms, we will find the end of our kingdom just like Herod found the end of his. Herod died, just like every other king in history died. Herod's kingdom was left to others, just as every other king's kingdom was left to others. Herod's kingdom faded and is broken. And it's just a footnote in history. But Jesus has the dominion. Jesus is a king who will never be dethroned. Jesus has a kingdom that will never shrink. It will only grow. Jesus has a kingdom that will never fade out of history. It will never be a footnote. It is the title page, the cover, from cover to cover. That is God's kingdom. The whole book of history is about his kingdom. He is the king who does not fade who does not die, who does not end. He is the king who for all eternity we will sing to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let Matthew 2 remind you of that. Herod, broken, forgotten, magi, still remembered for the way they worshiped. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you take this little seedling of truth that I have given in the sermon. Father, you can give the growth. Father, you can take my haphazard words, Father, and cause them to bear fruit in the lives of your people. And I pray that you will. Father, let us lay down our own kingdoms and give ourselves fully to the true King, Jesus Christ. God, we love you, and we pray that you help us love you even more. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.